Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I've sent out, I think, or uh, a paper has been sent out yep. that sort of basically yep. summarises what I'm covering. I work on the assumption that the third slot, after two excellent talks, you're going to feel a bit weary. So uh, you can drift in and out with equanimity because you've actually got something to We're uh, not Donald Trump. We do have an attention span longer than that. <laughs> 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 OK. Um, my talk links uh, to some extent with Alice's, um, and you will notice, I think, uh, I suppose some similarities and also some differences. So that uh, uh, I'm going to be focusing very much on the concept of institutional racism as a concept and whether it's worth utilising and how valuable it is. But I don't want to be misunderstood. Um, I'm going to de demonstrate to begin with that we still can talk. Uh, about persistent racial disadvantage in higher education, that's very important. So although actually I'm going to question the utility of the concept of institutional racism, I nonetheless want to end up by pointing out the importance that universities need to pay to the issue of racial disadvantage. I don't think they pay very much attention at all, and that's not just my own university, uh, which is pretty appalling in this area, but talking to colleagues, it's also characteristic of other universities. So I, I don't want my kind of challenge to the concept of institutional racism to imply that I don't think institutions uh, shouldn't prioritise the issue and take action. Indeed, I think that's something that they, uh, it, it, it's an imperative. Okay, let me start. And I'm going to start off by um, just pointing to um, racial disadvantage. Um, now, I, w I won't necessarily quote the research verbatim. I mean, I could send the full paper to you with the references if you want. Let let some Richard know, and I'll send it to you. But um, basically, uh, there's clear evidence that both staff and students from minority ethnic communities, from what's often called black and minority ethnic communities face racial disadvantage. If we take staff, um, they're more likely to be on fixed term contracts, they're more likely to face significant hurdles in career <coughs> progression, particularly um, in getting into, uh, say, VC positions or higher management positions, and also, as uh, you pointed out earlier, in members of the professoriate. Um, some people have even argued, a recent study by Bhopal has argued, that really not very much has changed in the last 20 years. Her research was based on interviews with black minority ethnic staff, and uh, she found that many of them felt marginalised, many of them felt um, strangers in, in a white world. Um, uh, uh, what Normal Poor, an old friend of mine, and colleague called Space Invaders, um, which I thought was quite a nice concept to, to point out the, the fact that some people feel in the white space of the academy that they're marginalised. So there's clear evidence that black and minority staff are, um, are facing disadvantage and that we think, I think there's very clear evidence that it isn't radically changing. Um, so far as students are concerned, it, seemingly looks different and what a lot of people emphasize is that black minority ethnic students are 
overrepresented in the higher education. They're more likely to be found there than, than their white counterparts. Um, but that can be very misleading, that's, that fact, it is a fact, uh, because they are clearly underrepresented in elite universities. Uh, it's not just meritocratic criteria that get you into elite universities. Um, and once in universities of any type, uh, elite and non-elite, um, you, you find that um, they're less likely to get good honours degrees, uh, two ones and firsts. Um, and they, uh, they're, they're, they've got a higher, they're, le they're less likely to be retained, to gain, to be retained, and they and I think, uh, again, Alice pointed this out, um, the, the transition to po postgraduate or to employment is, is imbued with difficulties. Um, and again, that's not changing a great deal, and it's interesting, we're all very interested in student survey now, aren't we, because the league tables to some extent constructed from the, your position on, on the survey. Um, our VC was very, very keen on this survey five years ago. When we suddenly rose up, he's less keen now that we suddenly were falling down. But uh, what's interesting in the survey, for my purposes, is that BME students express much less satisfaction, much more dissatisfaction than white students. So that's my starting off point. Clearly, racial disadvantage in our education, applying to both staff and students, and not radically changing. Slight improvements, maybe, but not radical improvements. And, and I would want to stress, we're talking not about one university or two universities, we're talking about across the board, uh, because um, if you take good honours degrees, for example, students, all universities, as far as I know, every single one of them faces um, that issue of their students um, underperforming. Now, again, caveat is in order. I'm talking generally about black minority ethnic students. Uh, as Kate pointed out, in relation to travellers, we're not talking about a homogeneous category, we're talking about divergent groupings, uh, so one's got to be a bit careful. But overall, my, my point is correct. It's borne out by the statistics. Okay, so that's my starting off point. Uh, there is clear racial disadvantage in higher education. Now, the persistence of this disadvantage, coupled with the fact that universities have been extremely complacent and have done very, very little um, about it, has led some people to say, uh, Kahindi Andrews is one, but um, uh, Nicola Rollett's another, uh, David Gilborn's another, you know, there are a number of them. Uh, of people say we need to kind of rediscover this concept of institutional racism. And I say rediscover because it has actually, in a sense, gone into abeyance. Um, I'll come back to its history in a minute. Okay. Um, now, what, what are they trying to do, people who emphasize the uh, importance of, of institutional racism? They're, they're above all emphasizing that something in organizations and something in the processes in organizations which however unintentionally entail disadvantage. What they're challenging um, is the notion that was very very common that disadvantage is a function of discrimination by individuals and that discrimination by individuals is a function of prejudice. Okay because what that suggests is that there are a few individuals aberrant abnormal individuals that uh, are prejudiced and may then discriminate 
and that produces this advantage. What's um, people emphasizing the concept of institutional racism are doing, like critical race theorists, is saying racism's normal, it's not abnormal, it's built into the institutional structures, um, and we need to take it much more seriously. And of course that has policy implications in terms of how you, how you deal with it. So um, it, that, that's what the concept's alerting us to. Okay. Now, um, okay, institutional racism, as you may know, emerged as a concept actually in 1963 in a book called Black Power uh, by Stokely Carmichael and somebody else whose name escapes me. Um, and it's, um, it, 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 it emerged in, in, the, in the context of the struggle of black people in the United States um, and their search for social justice. Uh, black Power as a movement was rather more radical than the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King and wanted to kind of highlight why is it that we're finding such, such, such difficulties. We seem to have had some civil rights legislation, but the situation of black people isn't radically improving. There's something significant going on. And so in this book, Black Power, Stokely Carmichael uh, points to uh, this concept of institutional racism. Now, he defines it not as a social scientist would define it very carefully, but there's lots of sort of illusions to it. But above all, he seems to suggest it's a form of colonialism. And like other colonial regimes, um, what it, the collective impact is, is that large organisations operate to maintain white privilege. Okay, so it's not a matter of... Um, prejudice um, that's driving things, it's a matter of privilege that's driving things. Uh, so what we need to address is the way institutions incorporate racist assumptions and the way they're linked to each other in incorporating them. And it just is emphasising how difficult it is to make progress and how you need to move beyond um, just looking at the law or looking at formal procedures to look much more more significant um, social policies. Okay. Now this concept of, of <coughs> institutional racism um, proved highly popular, uh, or proved not highly popular, but highly influential. Um, there were, particularly amongst radical sociologists in the US, people like uh, Robert Blauner um, and, and others. Um, but uh, it crossed the Atlantic um, in the 70s, so it was invented in the, in the US in the 60s, but by the 70s it had crossed over here. And um, the Contemporary Cultural Studies School in Birmingham, for example, utilised this, this concept. Um, and it was used by radical sociologists here, as in America, really to stress that racial disadvantage was not a product of prejudice and discrimination by individuals so much as a function of the way organisations had processes built into them which entailed disadvantage. Now the concepts grew in prominence um, to such an extent that the Scarman report um, in 1981, which was a judicial inquiry after the Brixton riots, uh, 
thought that it was necessary to at least investigate whether institutional racism was applicable. Um, now, I'll very quickly deal with Scarman. It, we've only had two judicial inquiries relating to race and ethnicity. That was the first one in 1981, and then the sub second one was McPherson in 19, when it was published in 1999. Um, and Scarman argued um, that institutional racism didn't exist in this country. Uh, this was actually the standard establishment view, and he said no organisations that he was aware of are um, explicitly uh, racist in terms of their policies. So if you take uh, universities, clearly in universities are not racist in terms of policies, but nor are the police. Uh, so he said institutional <coughs> racism doesn't exist in this country. Having said that, he was aware um, and he does talk about it, of racial disadvantage, and he is aware, was aware of what he called unwitting um, prejudice. Uh, so the police, um, in his view, it did to some extent practice uh, sort of uh, in ways which weren't necessarily wholly fair, uh, but this was unwitting, it wasn't consciously done, and it certainly wasn't a function of policy. Okay, so that was Starman. Now, Starman dismissed the concept, in other words. It, it basically disappeared from, from kind of discussions at a social policy level. But it lived on amongst some sociologists, amongst some organisations like the Institute of Race Relations. Um, but it only just about hung on because quite a lot of radical sociologists actually started critiquing the concept. I won't bore you um, or... Uh, evidence of how, but it meant that over the period between 1981 and 1997, it was becoming a marginal concept, really. It wasn't used uh, in looking at racial disadvantage or anything else. However, it's lived on enough for the McPherson inquiry to again look at it um, and re-look at the concept of it. Now, the McPherson inquiry, I'm sure you all know, was an inquiry into the police investigation into the murder, the racist murder, of Stephen Lawrence. Um, I think Stephen Lawrence was murdered in 1983. Um, 1993. Sorry? 1993. Uh, sorry, 1993. <laughs> sorry, thank you. And after some pressure, the Labour government uh, set up a, an inquiry under... Um, uh, Lord uh, uh, McPherson, uh, sorry, Sir William McPherson, not Lord, uh, Sir William McPherson. Uh, so that was set up in 1997 and the inquiry reported in 1999. Now, the inquiry relooked at this concept of institutional racism and somewhat surprisingly decided that in fact, even though the police weren't explicitly racist in their policies, uh, there was enough evidence that there were practices within the police force that entailed uh, had service being given to minority communities. And uh, McPherson spent some time defining the concepts uh, and arguing that the police were institutionally racist. And if you look carefully at the report, 
they argue that other organisations, including universities, are institutionally racist on the same lines. So, um, what you have then is a, a shift between 1981 and 1997 in the notion of its applicability. Uh, in a way, it's an extraordinary transformation. Remember, we have a concept created by black power activists in the US in 1963, uh, completely rejected by every single report that's ever been done by civil servant or a top judge or whatever in this country, until 1999, when Sir William McPherson, who lived up in Scotland in a castle and had issued one conservative with small C judgment uh, in court after another, was transformed enough by his experiences of talking, talking to black and minority ethnic people, to actually come to the judgment that institutional racism, this black power concept, was applicable to this country. Remarkable. And not just McPherson. The report came out in 1999. Tony Blair stood up in the House of Commons. Mm. Yes, there's institutional racism. Mm. Jack Straw, who commissioned the report mm. uh, as Home Secretary, said, yes, there's institutional racism, and there are 70 recommendations in this report, and we're going to actually implement every one of them. Um, any white dominated organisation, he said, is likely to have policies and practices and procedures, uh, not necessarily policies, practices and procedures which disadvantage minority communities. So in that sense, um, institutional racism is right, but we need to do something about it. So a big shift, um, as you can see. Now, what did McPherson mean when he talked about racism. I, this isn't the whole of his definition, but this is the crux of it, which he then has another paragraph um, amplifying. And I'll just leave it there for you, but I mean, the collective failure of an organisation to provide an appropriate and professional service to people because of their colour, cultural, ethnic origin. If it stops there, you might say, if that's institutional racism, it clearly exists. Collective it's an organisational issue, and it, it, all you need is evidence that um, people, because of their colour, cultural, or ethnic origin, are not getting the same level of service as people uh, who are of a different colour origin. You can show that, I've already shown it. In other words, that's the kind of way of talking about racial disadvantage. It can be seen, he goes on, or detected in processes, attitudes and behaviour, which amount to discrimination, through unwitting prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness, and racist stereotyping, which disadvantage minority ethnic people. Okay, so that was the, the sort of key definition that was employed. You can see a lot of indicators of uh, institutional racism being put here. Some behavioral, some attitudinal, some impersonal, some personal. Okay. All right, so what I want to make of this concept of institutional racism, um, I've kind of dealt with its history um, and how, and, and in particular, how this concept was taken up by McPherson and indeed by other agencies, including the government, um, in the uh, return of the, the, the century. 
2000-2001. Um, it didn't last long at that level. Very soon, key politicians like um, Blunkett were, were, without any evidence, things changing, saying this isn't any longer applicable. I'm not quite sure why he said that. I mean, it might not be applicable because it's conceptually uh, sort of uh, convoluted, but there hadn't been any changes empirically in terms of what the police were doing between 1999 when the, when the uh, report was published and 2001 um, when David Blunkett rejected the concept. But it was a very popular thing to do, to reject the concept. I mean, it's difficult to go back in time, but you look at the newspapers in 1999-2000, they were all talking about institutional racism, even the Daily Mail, believe it or not. Um, but by 2001, it, it was much more popular to say, ah, oh, so. Um, so things had radically changed very quickly. I'm not going to explore that, why that is. But what I want to, to look at is how this concept was contested. Now this slide is basically pointing to um, the value, as some people see it, of the concept. Um, it's valuable because it focuses on the way widely shared cultural beliefs and routine organisational practices reproduce this advantage. And we can look at our own organisations and perhaps think of some, some of those cultural beliefs, some of those organisational practices. And that's what those who believe in the concept tend to mean when they say we need to talk about institutional racism. One person who did talk about it was Bhikkhu Parekh in a very important, highly influential at the time report, totally ignored now, um, called The Future Multi-Ethnic Britain. It's an excellent, an excellent book in my view. But they, they, they talk about institutional racism in that book and then identify ten elements, as they see it, what they call interacting elements, of institutional racism, and um, I just, I don't think I'm going to read them all, but I'll just read one or two of them. Um, is there evidence of indirect discrimination in the services provided for members of minority ethnic groups? Are employment practices racially inequitable? Is the occupational culture ethnically inclusive? And I can go on. Now, I've actually utilised those, those questions in relation to my own organisation, um, or the organisation I studied, rather, um, and, and, uh, uh, which is entirely different, right? which is radically different, of course. And um, and what what one finds is that um, in that, uh, well, what I found was that a lot of these were applicable to my own organisation, the one I was studying. You might find it useful to ask your own organisation those questions. Um, uh, so I won't go. How much consultation is there with representatives? from minority communities, that was sort of what you were asking about, I think, earlier, um, was, you know, how much are people being listened to at all? Um, and, um, you know, quite often there's nothing going on at all. So there are clearly some people um, who see the concept as really valuable in pointing to processes and practices in organisations which reduce the racial disadvantage. And obviously McPherson is one of them, and um, Bhikkhu corrects another. However, um, there are people who challenge it. Now, I can go into um, quite a lot of detail here. I did think about reading it out to you, but I think you might 
be very, very bored if I did so. But there are people like Ali Ritanzi uh, and others that are very, very sceptical of MacPherson's definition. And um, they're particularly sceptical of MacPherson's definition and Perec's definition because it brings together so many divergent elements. So it brings together, um, for example, beliefs which legitimates racial inequality. So beliefs like uh, biological, the old biological notion of race, yeah, that the world can be divided into distinct um, races that are, as it were, genetically, as we would call it, different. Um, and, and there's a hierarchy there. Um, that's one kind of racism. Another kind of racism is there are central differences between people that have some roots in biology but manifest themselves in perhaps cultural differences so that you can't mix. Uh, so that, that's, that's a couple of concepts. Then racially discriminatory practices. Well, that's a bit different because we're moving from beliefs to practices. And there's different kinds of discrimination that one can talk about. One can talk about direct discrimination based upon race. Um, where you deliberately, um, there was a case in the paper the other day, or sorry, it shows my age, isn't it? On the internet the other day, of somebody who was said, no, I don't want X, Y, and Z in my house, in or in my rented properties, in blah blah blah. And it was clearly direct racial discrimination. They, they smell, don't they? These people, therefore, we don't have these people that smell. Uh, these people who smell are these minority groups, and all. They, he had to be fair to him. He had every bloody category under the sun that he didn't want to go into. His, I think white uh, middle-aged affluent professionals would have been all right, uh, but everybody else wasn't. Anyway, that would be direct discrimination. But indirect discrimination um, it also can be talked about, which is banned by law. Um, and that's where there are practices which disadvantage particular groups, but they're not necessarily practices which are motivated by racism. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you say that um, you need, a, I don't know, five GCSEs, grades A to C, to be a, I don't know, a hairdresser. Sorry, is that unfair? Um, then, it, and that actually has the, has the. Um, consequence that you find very few black and minority ethnic communities coming forward. That would be an example, this is completely made up, of indirect discrimination. So you, indirect discrimination is where an irrelevant criteria, for example, is being used to select people. But it's not necessarily deliberately done on the basis of race. It can be done on the basis of history. Um, and finally, you've got patterns of racial disadvantage. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is that the concept of institutional racism as employed by McPherson and, and Parekh, uh, does tend to conflate these phenomena. Now, I'm a social scientist, so that's how I see myself. And I, I'm, I, I want really to try to understand and explain things. And I think it's analytically more useful to distinguish things like prejudice and discrimination and disadvantage than conflate them. Now, in McPherson's case, he even includes inaction in this concept of institutional racism. So it's not just actions which have certain consequences, but even non-actions. So um, I'm, I'm saying the concepts contested. Uh, what I'm arguing is, uh, on one side of that case, I'm arguing that I actually agree with the critics that the concept of institutional racism, as it's employed by 
McPherson and Perret is too broad. And what we need, therefore, is a more circumscribed concept of institutional racism. Okay, well, I did, yes, I have got Ritans, Ali Ritanz's book. Racism, a short introduction. It's a cracking read. Really, really good book. Even if ultimately you don't always agree with it. I think I pretty well did agree with it, but if you don't, it's still a brilliant book. Um, and uh, that's Ali, Ali Ritanz's critique of the McPherson definition. Um, um, now, it's not perhaps wholly surprising that the McPherson definition is, is um, challenged. Yeah. When you actually look at the origins of the concept, and here I, I owe this to a, a friend and colleague of mine, Carrie Mergey, who interviewed Richard Stone. Now, Richard Stone was one of the three people uh, that worked he, with um, uh, Sir William McPherson, were one of the two people that worked with Sir William McPherson um, on the McPherson report. And, and here is um, what uh, Carrie found when he talked to Richard. Um, and this is, this is Richard Stone's words. You look at our definition, it was going to be one line, one sentence, that was it. Then all of us felt that there were certain words that were not in, which is why we had the second paragraph. Then we had to work out how you go to typeset it so that the second paragraph doesn't get lost in the first paragraph. That's why you've actually got two paragraphs looking as if they're two. And a typical sort of bathroom goes on. The prime example is that I went to Bill McPherson one day and said, Bill, this unwitting prejudice, very unhappy about unwitting, because I think it's very often witty. I understand the point, because once something's un once, once you actually find that something's unwitting, people talk about it, I'll be unwitting, so from then on it's witting. So it's, it's an interesting point, Richard, make me. But I said, you don't understand, Richard, this is a judicial inquiry, and we have to rely on precedent. There's only one precedent, that's Scarman. Scarman used the word unwitting, and I think it's very important we've put it in, so that people could see that we're not ignoring our precedents. But anyway, he said, you asked for racial stereotyping yesterday, and you got it. And that completely undermined my challenge. I, I found that fascinating, really, because you kind of look at these concepts as they're produced. I mean, McPherson's not a social scientist, he's a judge, but he, that's how it got produced through this bartering process. And once you realise that, it's perhaps not quite so surprising. It's a bit of a jumble, this, this concept, as employed by McPherson and Perec. Now, having said that, I don't want to suggest that we can't use the concept of institutional racism, but I want to use it in a more circumscribed way. And I want to use it um, to refer... Um, all right, okay, next. Um, to refer to, to the, the bottom. Uh, the, sorry, exclusionary practices uh, that embody a racist discourse. So I, I, I want to have a have a more specific notion of institutional racism. Now, this would take me some time arguing, and I'm clearly not going to be able to do that today. But since I see racism as a discourse, um, institutional racism is when um, that is embodied in some sense in institutional processes. Um, and this particular study, which I think is very good, pointing to some of these processes. One is 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 the cultural uh, institutional culture and the other is the routine practices. 
Um, you'll find this in your um, hats or will be sent out later. So uh, I won't spell those out. So I do think that we can use the concept of institutional racism, but I personally would prefer to use it in a more circumscribed way to, to actually talk about those situations where you can demonstrate that there are uh, the climate of assumptions which are hostile to outside groups in a particular organisational culture, and these are embodied in certain practices of that organisation. Now, in terms of my own research, um, I, I did look at the police force where I concluded actually that you were talking institutional racism still 10 years after McPherson, because there clearly was evidence of an institutional culture where stereotypes were prevalent and prevailed and even black police officers faced the consequences of those stereotypes and these were embedded in certain practices like stop and search which ultimately um, had the consequence of disproportionately impacting on black uh, and to some extent minority ethnic um, people. But in relation to the university I looked at, um, I, I was less confident in uh, perhaps less able, perhaps I'm just a poor ethnographer, but I was less able or less confident in demonstrating that within the culture there was a, a, a set of assumptions which were hostile to minority groups. And even though there clearly were certain practices which were disadvantaging minority groups, because I couldn't demonstrate there was the culture embodied in the assumptions, I came to the conclusion that uh, while institutional racism was true in the police, it wasn't true in the university. Having said that, I want to go back to my beginning and, and emphasize that, um, that while we don't need to resurrect, in my view, the concept of institutional racism to understand racial disadvantage, um, we do need to identify the process in organizations which entail adverse outcomes and we need to take corresponding action. Uh, universities will not be able to, prior to promote race equality unless they see it as their responsibility to take ameliorative action. At the moment, I don't think universities see a problem. Uh, it's partly because they're not listening to people from minority communities. It's partly because they're not actually paying any attention to adverse outcomes, which mm. I talked about at the beginning. And it's to some extent because they see themselves, again now this made this point, as liberal mm. and they are tied to a very liberal conception of equality. Mm. So they basically see this answer as fair procedures. Now generally speaking there are fair procedures. We do have applications, don't we? They're advertised, there's person specifications, job specifications. You, you work out what kinds of questions you can ask in, in an interview panel. All these kinds of fair procedures, but they're not working. And if you're tied into a liberal notion of equality, then, well, that's it. That's all you do. If they don't work, well, there's something problematic about them. But if you take a radical conception of equality, which I do, you ought to be concerned about the adverse outcomes, and you ought to be doing something about them. And you ought, for example, be challenging the liberal conception of equality and looking wider. There are lots of possible uh, factors that need to be looked at, but I wouldn't like, as I said at the beginning, my critique of a particular concept of institutional racism 
which I don't think needs to be brought back, to mean that we shouldn't pay attention to institutional processes. I think we should. Uh, on, it's, it's not, we're not talking about prejudices of, of, of aberrant individuals creating these problems what we talked about at the beginning. That, that is not the issue. It's something much more fundamental, much more institutional, and that's what we should be addressing as universities. Thank you very much.